podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, December 12th, 2008. I'm Aletta Rangi. Coffee in the morning, fresh cut grass, diesel fuel. Today, we're talking about smell. Leslie Vosshall is a neurogeneticist at Rockefeller University in New York City. Avery Gilbert is a smell scientist and author of What the Nose Knows. They teamed up at the latest SNC Science of the Five Senses event to tackle how our noses work. So take a deep breath. We're delving into the biology, genetics, and psychology of smell. Leslie Vosshall studies smell for a living. It's a great thing to study. It's a sense that everybody can get behind. People are fascinated by it. Everybody can understand. It's not esoteric, so everyone smells. Everyone's had the experience of smelling. And it remains one of the least studied senses, so it's only come into its big modern heyday in the last 10 years. So there's a lot that we simply, we have no idea how it works. And so that makes it scientifically interesting. You can go to work feeling like rather than cleaning up the last few details, you can march out into fresh virgin territory, and that's what drives most scientists. Avery Gilbert also studies smell for a living. My interest in smell is behavioral. I mean, I started as an animal behavior student and gradually and only reluctantly became a student of human sense of smell. Basically, I'm interested in what happens once people smell something, the behavioral response, the psychological response, why people prefer the things they do. So it's, it's really where, where the perfume hits the nose is uh, the place I've always been interested to be. Smell may not seem like the most glamorous of the senses, and in fact, it's the most likely sense to go unnoticed on a daily basis. But as Vosshall, a neurogeneticist at Rockefeller University, explains, smell plays a big role in our lives, and in other species as well. If something is burning in your neighborhood or in your building, your sense of smell would be the first to detect it. You're not sticking around to feel fire or look at it. Smell is an early harbinger of danger. Also, it's really useful for finding food, so animals that don't have access to whole foods or supermarkets actually have to forage for food and make decisions about whether it's rotten or not rotten, and so the sense of smell is really useful for that. Many animals sniff each other. Dogs famously sniff each other as a a way of getting information, finding mates, figuring out who's dominant and who's submissive. Humans might do this as well. Uh, And if you're an animal that has a predator, you get really good at distinguishing the smell of its urine from the urine of your wife. So mice have a part of the brain highly sensitive to predator odor. So that's a smart thing to figure out to smell if you're a mouse. It's also useful because we spend billions of dollars on smell. So most of you probably showered at some point in the last week. You used a laundry detergent that was loaded with synthetic musks and other fragrances. You probably are wearing a deodorant, which is full of chemicals that mask how you normally would smell if you didn't shower. And so altogether, people spend worldwide billions and billions of dollars on smells. Uh, and then clinically, increasingly, we view the sense of smell as a harbinger of bad things to come in the brain. It may be possible to diagnose early onset Alzheimer's disease just by giving someone a smell test. So most of you can distinguish the smell of fish from roses. People who get to be not so good at distinguishing those at some frequency end up getting terrible neurodegenerative diseases. So smell can tell us a lot about our own health as well as our surrounding environment. But how does it actually work? Basically, there are two essential components to smelling. One is an olfactory system. Two is chemical molecules to interact with that system. When you take a deep sniff, 
you inhale molecules of what you're smelling. Pizza, dirty socks, flowers, you get the idea. These molecules get snagged in the gooey membrane inside your nose. This membrane is called the epithelium and houses millions of sensory neurons. On these neurons are our smell receptors. Receptors are responsible for identifying the molecules you inhale. So when you inhale a molecule of pizza smell, for instance, the receptor will latch onto the molecule and trigger the neuron to send a signal to the brain. In the brain, that signal is processed and interpreted. While you have millions of smell receptors, scientists think humans have only around 400 types of receptors, each one capable of responding to only certain smell molecules. So how is it that we can smell thousands of different scents with only hundreds of different types of receptors? It's this idea that the receptors are not unique. You don't have a strawberry protein that smells strawberry or a coffee protein that smells coffee. There's overlap. So if you look at um, receptor 1, it can bind to these three smell molecules. Receptor 5 can bind to these, and you get a code that then eventually uh, translates into a smell. So if you activate this receptor with that odor, you'll get a perception of rancid, sour, goat-like. If you activate these two guys, it will smell sweet, herbal, and woody. So combinations of molecules lead to certain scents. Smell molecules themselves differ in shape, but sometimes not by much. Vossel says it's remarkable that the brain is able to distinguish the minute differences between certain smell molecules. The nose can do amazing things. So here are two molecules that are chemically identical, that differ only in being left and right hand versions of the same molecule. To most of us, they smell different. So we must have a way in the nose to tell the difference between a left and a right-handed carbon molecule, and the brain can tell the difference. So we have a receptor that can tell the difference between left and right. There are also cases where the nose gets confused. So here are two things that smell like benzaldehyde, that smell like um, bitter almonds. So one is benzaldehyde. You can smell that and live to tell the tale. Hydrogen cyanide is said to smell like bitter almond, but it will also kill you. And the molecules are very different. So somehow there's a receptor that binds this and binds this, and, and there's an overlap in the, in the percept of how the odor smells. And then finally, a cool thing about smell is that you don't often open up a jar and smell just one molecule. You'll be sniffing your dinner, or if you're smelling a rose, there'll be hundreds and hundreds of odor molecules in there. And so your brain has to figure out first how many odors are there, in what ratio, and then puts it together to say, aha, it's a rose. But smell isn't just about roses. Ever put a spoonful of peanut butter in your mouth when you have a cold? It might as well be cement. Gilbert, author of What the Nose Knows, explains. Smell and taste are intimately linked to the point where what we regard as sort of the unitary perception of flavor is really an illusion. I mean, it's fusion of taste and smell, which are two independent sensory modalities, different nerves, different areas of the brain entirely. But if you pinch your nose while you're eating something or drinking something, you don't get any of the flavor value from it. I mean, you get very little, you get salty and bitter and so forth, very attenuated versions of flavor. So what I've stressed in my book, and it really dawned on me when I started researching it, is that what we are good at, what the human nose is good at, is savoring food that's in the mouth. People have called the second way of smelling. The technical term is retronasal olfaction. It's when you, instead of breathing in smell through your nostrils, you exhale while you're eating food or after you've swallowed something. And that reverse flow is what gives you the aroma of food and beverage. And um, we're incredibly good at that. It's savoring our food. It's something a lot of animals don't do. They gulp and uh, it's done. <laughs> so we might not be up to speed... Uh, smelling things at a distance like a dog or an animal or a predator, but we can uh, certainly get it up close. Our genes help determine what 
and how we smell, since our genes determine which of the 400 or so smell receptors we have. We're all different, so Duran Lancet's group has looked at individuals to sort of fingerprint these genes across different people and finds that essentially every human has the potential to have a unique set of receptors that makes them different. So if you're arguing with your spouse about whether it smells good or bad, it might not be personal. It might just be that they're, they have this genotype, so they have a red receptor that doesn't work, and so they perceive things differently. Um, one theory about why humans have lost so many genes is that we got really good at seeing. So, so we have trichromatic color vision. So we've lost about half of our receptors. Other monkeys that acquired color vision lost about 30% of their receptors. But animals that still need to depend on their sense of smell because they don't have great color vision have retained more of their receptors. So that's one idea that if you acquire a really good sense of vision and you can see that the food is rotten, perhaps you don't need your sense of smell as much. It's one untested theory. This smell genome is ever-evolving, and Gilbert thinks history's played a big role in determining what we can sniff. I think our diet has actually influenced our odor perception at a genetic level. When we started cooking things back when we were emerging as a modern species, hundreds of thousands, even over a million years ago, using fire to cook, that produced a big change because cooked meat, cooked vegetables, release more food value, they're faster to eat, easier to eat. So our faces shrank as our teeth shrank. We didn't need to chew and gnaw on stuff. We didn't need to grind stuff down. It freed up time. When you're not spending all day chewing on a monkey leg, you can do a lot of other things. And so it had effects on our social behavior, time budgets, pair bonding, and, and so forth. So the f structure of our face changed. I believe this probably produced evolutionary pressure on the odor receptors. We have hundreds of these genes that produce different receptors tuned to different kinds of smells. And what I think happened is that we started producing by cooking smells that had never existed before in nature. So you've got things like fermented notes from milk, cheese, butter, yogurt, things like that, or fermented uh, alcohol beverages, so beer and wine. Those didn't exist in mass quantities reliably in the world. Neither did the uh, smells of cooking like toasted notes, for bread, when you have, once you domesticate grains start making bread, you've got toasted notes, the roasted notes of meat, once you start cooking that old mastodon steak over the grill. These were novel, and as they became part of our behavioral repertoire, I think we basically evolved a better resolution in the nose to deal with them. Smell is the least studied of the five senses. One of its biggest mysteries is a sex pheromone, a chemical that triggers sex responses in animals. But... The question is, are there pheromones in humans? So I told you that androsterone and androstadienone are touted as pheromones. They have effects on mood in men and women. There's a famous study from Martha McClintock in the 70s where she began to try to explain this phenomenon that women who are housed together, so you go to college, you live in a female dorm, and all the women start having their periods at the same time. Even though they came from different parts of the country and they had different menstrual cycles, they all synchronize something that mouse biologists notice. It's a common fact that females in groups, what they're really synchronizing is their fertility, their ovulation, because it's a good competitive scheme to get all of the females ovulating at the same time so that there's greater competition for the male in choosing among the ovulating women. And so this was this amazing phenomenon that female humans also show menstrual synchrony. And not much has happened in the field in the last 30 years, but Martha McClintock's group could show that there's something in sweat that you could paint from one woman to another woman that she could smell that would change the phase of her menstrual cycle. And then this incredibly fascinating paper last year where psychologists in uh, New Mexico asked 
lap dancers, so exotic dancers who dance for a living, to anonymously log on and tell the psychologist how much they earned in tips on a given night, but also to tell the psychologist where they were in the menstrual cycle. So they could track when they were menstruating and when they were at peak fertility. And then a control group of exotic dancers who were on the pill, so they're sort of pseudo-pregnant and they never ovulate. And this amazing thing that even though the men are not aware that when the women are ovulating, it's not advertised, it's in the interest of the dancer to make as much money as possible. There was a clear and a significant effect of ovulation, as if there's something about an ovulating woman that a man in a strip bar can actually perceive. So, so while the women make less money at low fertility, they make an enormous amount more at high fertility. So this is the first case last year. There might be something going on that women smell different or act different. Something is different about them during ovulation. And so the last funny story about human pheromones is that mice are very good at making decisions about mate quality. So if you give a female mouse a choice of mating with a mouse that's like her genetically or unlike her, she will all the time choose a male who's different. So a female mouse on the market looking for a mate looks to outbreed. So she'll choose a male mouse who smells different. So they're able to smell the genetic, genetic differences in different mouse populations. Studies in humans have shown that humans can do the same thing. So if you ask, these are these great t-shirt studies where they collect, they, they get a bunch of men who are genetically different. They're either similar to the woman or different. Put on white t-shirts, collect the t-shirts, and then have the women sniff them for how attractive is this odor. And so women who are actively ovulating, so they're cycling, rate the t-shirts from men who are genetically different is much more pleasant. So if you're ovulating, you prefer the other. However, if you're taking contraceptives when you're sort of pseudo-pregnant, you prefer same. So it's this bi biological phenomenon that perhaps if you're looking to breed, you want to outbreed to increase the fitness, the gene pool of your children. But when you're pseudo-pregnant, you might want to get together with close relatives so you can rear children in common. The idea of a marketable human sex pheromone has not been lost on the smell industry. And while you can, of course, go online and buy a bottle of pheromone spray, perhaps the more familiar variation of the attractive scent is perfume. Gilbert has worked in the perfume industry for years and was one of the first people to bring science to the seductive scent. I did something unusual. I set up a sensory testing lab in the perfume business. The perfume business traditionally has been about the client coming in and the perfumer creating novel smells, and there might be a conversation between the two of them or not, <laughs> as the case may be, depending on how dominating your perfumer is. But there was no room for science, really, in it. And as consumer testing, sensory testing has matured and become more sophisticated, it was time for the company to get that capability. So that's what I set up for them. What Gilbert hopes is that by identifying what people like and dislike, he can also identify what smells are worth keeping in and what smells are worth losing when it comes to perfume. He also thinks it can tell us something about our genetic makeup. For instance, it appears that 5% of us can't smell vanilla. And if you can't smell vanilla, it means you can't taste it either. As Gilbert explains, the smell and taste industry are closely connected. Who remembers how strawberry candies tasted in the 1960s? Remember those kind of candies you'd get wrapped, and they had a kind of fakey taste. It wasn't very authentic, and yet it was strawberry candy, strawberry gum. If you go to any store today and have a strawberry candy, you get a very realistic experience. And that's a direct result of improvements in technology and chemical analysis that have happened really in the last 20, 30 years. This is a uh, gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, which is a device, you see it on CSI programs on TV. You can take little samples of food and natural ingredients, put them in these bottles, and the device will sample it, heat it up, blow it through a tiny little coil tube, and separate out 
the individual aromatic components by their evaporative points. So the most volatile ingredients will come out first from the end of the machine. It can be analyzed by the machine or by a person sitting at the end of it and sniffing. You separate out the components of a bouquet into the individual notes. It's like taking the chord in music and playing it as a broken arpeggio. So you can hear each note individually. Here you can smell each note individually. And then once you've reduced a, a complex bouquet to its individual components, you can recreate it. And that in itself has enabled us to make much more realistic compositions for artificial flavors and foods, as well as to mimic natural ones. Smell science is a complicated one, but Voswell says one of her favorite things about studying our noses is that we're naturally born smellers. Something really cool about smell is it requires no advanced preparation. You can get on a plane to India or Morocco and smell many different kinds of bananas that you've never smelled in an American supermarket, and you can tell the differences between them. And so your, your mind is pre-patterned and, and prepared to smell essentially any odor that can exist. A really good case of this is the perfume companies who are actively synthesizing smell molecules to make new things in the sandalwood family. So sandalwood trees um, are rapidly being chopped down in India, but sandalwood's a very appealing perfumery ingredient. So there are chemists making synthetic odors that have never existed on Earth before, and yet somehow the perfumers and the customer at the end has the capacity to smell things. So we are endowed with the capacity to smell a very large number of odor molecules. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Ranke. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you love Science in the City podcast, we would really appreciate your support. You can do that by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click join now. Did you know that you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes? And you can get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library. Just search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show or the Science in the City website, feel free to give us some feedback online at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can do it by calling in and leaving a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science in New York City, visit us online at scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.